You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. This is Father Mark Poulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Welcome. Good morning, Father Paul. Good morning, Dr. Benton. How are you both? Good morning. Good morning, Father. Fine. So today we want to talk about the term raised. It's a term we take for granted. I think people assume they understand what it means. But studying with Father Paul, I've come to realize that it is a technical term that once again, with further study, opens up new avenues of understanding in the text, both in the New and the Old Testament. So Father Paul, we're excited to have you talk about the term raised this morning in both Greek and Hebrew. This term is very sensitive because of its connection in the minds of the people with the resurrection of Christ and by the same token our resurrection. And it is usually understood as resurrect and thus from the dead. But already in English, when you say Christ is risen, it sounds like someone who is risen from sleep or lying down and then got up. And that reflects the original, and in this case, in both languages. Let me begin with the Hebrew, qam, which you hear in Arabic, al-Masih qam, means to stand up. Ahmad in Hebrew means to stand erect. In other words, even if you're standing, but not solidly up, like in a column, which is amud in Arabic, then you have to correct your standing. But qam means to stand up. And the fifth form, which is the hif'il, which is known as causative form, make someone do something, is hiqim, in Arabic is aqama. Now in Greek, the first one is translated as anistimi, from which we have anesti. But the second one, to make stand, is another verb. It could be the same verb, as I shall mention a text, but usually another verb is used, a hero. And that is very important to remember, because at no point we hear in the New Testament as understood commonly among people that Jesus raised himself. It's always he was raised, and thus someone else raised him. And this is the point that I would like to elaborate upon. The action is the action of God. Because one can say, remember how the people said about Jesus, that he can do these things by Beelzebul. The power he has, it comes from the chief among the demons. And that second, or if you like, third party, if you include ourselves, is God and is not Jesus. The same mistake is used due to theology about the two natures in Christ, which doesn't make sense, that the human nature obeys the divine nature, which is silly. It's like Jesus is obeying himself. Well, obedience doesn't work like that. If you obey yourself, then you're not obeying. (laughs) You're doing whatever you want. And the episode of Gethsemane tells us very clearly that Jesus said, let not my will be done but your will be done. So I would like my hearers to keep this in mind when we are tackling the verb to rise 
and then to raise. Jesus rose, but God raised him. He was raised. And I would like to share with you a text which we have in chapter 14 of Romans, where Paul speaks about table fellowship and tells everybody that you should not judge how and what the other person is eating. It's not up to you. But this does not mean do not judge. But Matthew says, do not judge, because you shall be judged. By whom? Obviously, by God. Let's hear this text, and you will notice it has nothing to do with the resurrection of either Christ or us. But it uses that verb. It goes like this in Romans 14, verses 3 and 4. Let not him who eats despise him who abstains, and let not him who abstains pass judgment on him who eats, for God has welcomed him. That's 13. 14. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands. Very interesting. Or falls. And he will be upheld, which in Greek is the passive of make stand. But the English had no choice but to translate it as be upheld, which is very interesting because it reflects the meaning. For the master is able to make him stand. Again, it's a verb from the root, istimi, from which we have anesti. So let's hear it again. It is before his own master that he stands or fall, and he will be upheld. He will be made to stand, for the master is able to make him stand. So in Romans 14.4, we have all the components that uphold my thesis that I presented at the beginning. But what is interesting, that the stand here has nothing to do with raising from the dead. So what does it mean? It means that he will be made to stand in a court of law in the face of everybody and not being put down. Let me make what my hearers would assume is a jump, but it is not. Appeal to another example where Paul uses often the verb parastisi from paristimi. The Greek uses a lot of prepositional verbs to stand in front of. And technically that paristimi, parastisi, is used with the connection of our judgment at the end. The idea is to make someone, uphold someone in the sight of the people. Now, the parallel to that is found in the story of the girl that is dead, that Jesus raises. I mean, everybody is assuming that she is finished. She's done. She's condemned. And Jesus interferes with the power of God to tell the people that it is not so. But then... This corresponds also to the story of the man in the synagogue who had a withered hand. In other words, he had no power to use his hand. And when Jesus healed him, he technically empowered him. He gave him back the use of his hand. The bottom line then is that this verb to make someone stand means to put someone any position which is the opposite of the position in which the people put that person. 
it is what I call the correcting or correctional intervention of God to prove that the people are wrong or were wrong. And when we put all these things together, then it becomes very clear that the death of Jesus was not just a death, because everybody dies. What's the big deal? Everybody dies. But the biblical story tells us that Jesus was put to death, condemned by the people as someone who is unrighteous and immediately we have the connotation of the court of law he was judged by the people as being unrighteous and god intervenes in his own time notice again the third day one two and then three it's the ultimate intervention of god to make him stand in the eyes of all those who condemned him, Gentiles and Jews alike. Notice how you had the Sanhedrin, the high priest, the priests, and then also Pontius Pilate. And this is the actual message of the text. And this, what I just said, is confirmed in 1 Corinthians 15, where we hear that Jesus Yes, indeed, was raised. But the ultimate enemy, which is death, will not be put down until the day of judgment and the resurrection. So the biblical story of Jesus being raised from the dead is not the last word in the story because people still die. And thus, in which sense... Even the statement of the sermon at Easter in the Orthodox churches, Christ is risen and there is no dead in the tombs. That is not biblical. I know that the people refer to Matthew where it is said that some of the dead who were righteous, not all of the dead, but there is no need to enter into this passage. Let's stick with Corinthians and we hear, then cometh the end when Every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after they that are Christ at his coming, they will be raised, not before. Then cometh the end, and he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Very interesting. We have it also at the end of the book of Revelation, when death is thrown into the lake of fire. So my invitation, and it's always very difficult for the people, most of us who are stuck with the theology that is fabricated by the human mind, mainly Greco-Roman mind, and it's no more Semite, that the intervention of God when he raised Jesus is to prove to the people that Jesus stands, as we heard it in Romans, and not put down under judgment by the people or put down by the judgment of the people. No, he is the righteous one, and I will make his case stand in front of everybody in my court of law, which is the only court that counts.
Now let me jump back and finish here and then we can debate it a little bit. This hiqim, aqama, to put someone, in the Bible very often we have it that someone put someone else in a position. Until now we use it in Arabic in the newspapers to assign something, to put him in a position where everybody can see him standing in power. And with this, I would like to end something I pointed out in my book, that there is a big difference between the raising of Jesus and our raising. We shall be raised unto life against death. But Jesus was raised unto power because he will be seated on the seat of judgment to judge the people who had judged him wrongly. Again. This is another sub-theme, if you like. I concentrated upon your request on the meaning of making someone stand correct, righteous, before the people who had judged him. And thus, ultimately, the judgment of God stands through his having raised Jesus, meaning proclaimed him righteous against and in the face of the judgment of the people when ezekiel falls on his face after seeing the apparition of god at the end of chapter one in ezekiel yahweh tells ezekiel to stand on his feet how does that Ahmad fit with Ham and Hakim. How does that fit in there how do you understand um, what's going on in that passage as opposed to any of these other passages well, you know, Richard, that in all languages, there is always a intersection, crossing between the verbs. Let me go for the English, hear and listen. You can debate until doomsday, but hear is not totally listen, and listen is not totally hear. But they intersect. Ahmad, as I mentioned earlier, we have it in Arabic, like the word colon. We call it amud, something that is standing erect. Now, if you go into Arabic, you will see amada means someone had the intention of doing this. So you have the connotation of something that is erect and thus straight, standing up completely. So amad would be something more forceful than calm. But the meaning ultimately, as I say again and again, and people know that from the dictionaries, gets its ultimate connotation from the context. And in this context, Ezekiel was bowing down, not totally flat, prostrated. So amad would be more, if you like, stand up as compared to stand it's these prepositions that are very important. It's like the verb to withstand or stand before the seat of judgment. That would be my answer to you, and not as very often in theology it is done. People think that a word has that meaning, and technically, and you hear it that way, it does not work like this in languages. It is the story, someone who is prostrate and then he's made to stand erect compared to someone who is lying down completely and then is made to stand up. What's striking, I think, in terms of Paul's gospel is that 
you know, probably because of theology, because of Hellenism, people tend to think of the resurrection as an ascesis or an act of strength on the part of Jesus. But it's always been very clear to me, having heard this discussion of the terminology, that Jesus was raised, as you've said over and over again. And I think the implications are significant because it took an intervention of God. Jesus couldn't do anything when he was dead. He was dead in that sense. I think that this is something that is not just overlooked or glossed over, but actually not understood. But I think it's essential, especially in terms of the Pauline argument about grace and so forth. So I'm just curious if you have any further thoughts along those lines. Definitely. You need another agent to implement the work. You have it in the story of Elijah and Elisha and the dead young man. And so it, it just does not work any other way. Otherwise, you know, and this is what I hear in classical theology, Jesus is presented very often as a Houdini who does not even know his father. And Luke is very extreme in adding in the story of the temptation of Jesus that he was sweating blood. Obviously, it's a literary expression to say that he was going through a very difficult experience where he had to decide between following his will or following the will of God. Obviously, this is a reflection of Isaiah 53, where we hear it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. Jesus accepted his death in obedience to God, in spite of the fact that he did not merit this death because he was righteous. Remember again, friends, this death business about which I hear all the time in talks and so on uh, has nothing to do with the death of the Bible. The death of the Bible is always connected to punishment. Dying naturally is not a big deal. You're bound to die. But it is the punishment when one is put to death by someone else. And in the Bible, only God has the right to do so, which means when someone else does it, let's go for David and Uriah. It's incorrect. Now, God did not raise again Uriah. That's not the big deal. The big deal is that he told David through Nathan that you did wrongly when you did that. You have no right to do it. And this is how the story plays itself in the New Testament. That message of God to both Jews and Gentiles, that you were wrong in your condemnation of Jesus. And that's why on Holy Saturday we said, Arise, O God. Sometimes I hear people say, Arise, O Lord. Lord, you know, could mean Jesus. That's very dangerous. But we have a direct quotation from Psalm 82, where the word Yahweh does not appear. It is arise, O God, and judge the nations. Why would one read this at the resurrection? We don't hear in this psalm about any resurrection. We hear about God implementing his being judge over all gods and all nations. Rubrics for me are very important. I like not all the time, but let's say 80% of the time the Orthodox rubrics, but I just cannot accept the comments of the Orthodox on those rubrics. It's a big difference between the two. But again, 
the rubrics are not the reference. The reference is the scriptural text, and we have to correct and review any rubric against that. Because obviously, in scripture, the Lord and God are referring to the same person. All I'm saying is that in 82, you do not have Yahweh, you have Elohim. And it is this psalm that is read. You notice that we have a reading also from the creation and Daniel. It is proclaiming the kingship of God, meaning the Father, over everyone and everybody and everything. That's how I hear those readings, Daniel among the nations. So again, we have to be technical if we want to save the rubrics, and I think that it is very positive. I think it's interesting, too, that when we ask the Lord or God to arise, it's using the call, which is the simple stand up. But there is this notion in other places that the Lord is raising them up using Hakim, the causative. The Hebrew is able to show more clearly the distinction between one arising by their own power, which we have with the Lord, and then we have the causative, where one causes another to arise, which is what the king does with the subject. Absolutely. And again, as I said at the beginning, what is interesting is that because the Greek does not, I mean, it uses istimistisi, stisi, now and then as make stand. In other words, it could have done it. But then it shows the authors, who are the translators, the same as the authors, a different verb to precisely stress this difference between the Kal form and the Hefeil. They used Istimi and they used Egirin. In other words, we have to start with what we have. The way earlier you mentioned yourself about Ezekiel, Ahmad, and so You start, but then there is... The passage, the literary connotation, my classic example to try to convince the people, which is very hard because they want to stick that a word means just what it means. Common words in our dictionaries usually need more than one colon, if not more than one, two, three pages. You have a long entry with so many examples taken from so many authors to tell you that it has a different meaning. Let's go a little bit further. Notice the English. You have stand, you have stand up, and you have stand down. Very interesting. And then I was taken the first time. I heard Richard Burton in the movie Were Eagles There ordering the enemy. They were on a cable car. He said, climb down. It was very scandalous for me because when I learned climb, it meant always going up. This is how we have to teach, friends. Technicalities. You don't teach the meaning of the text. The text is very clear for those who know the original. Their judgment is not whether they understood correctly or not. Our judgment is going to be on whether we have done something. It's like the orders in an army. It cannot be this or that. It has to be very clear. And since the Bible is a set of commandments, then it is very clear. What makes it unclear is our complications to make justifications. Climb down. I use it very often in my teaching. How can you climb down? These prepositions, which we do not have in the Semitic languages, were developed in other languages to try to show us the connotation between 
two nuances or even meanings of the same word. And the main thing in this regard is to remember that to raise needs a second party doing the action on you. To rise means you do it. But since the honesty of Jesus is, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, is the result of God a gear in him, then he did not make himself stand. He stood by the order of God. We have to practice and practice in conjunction with passages. Now I'm curious about the Lord appearing four times in the beginning of Psalms and then God towards the end of Psalms, but that sounds like a whole other discussion. Yes, you could make it short by reading my books. <laughs> I said it so often that you begin with Jerusalem, you end with Zion. You begin with the Lord, you end more with God. And then you begin with the earthly king and you end up more with the heavenly king. These three aspects are of the essence in Psalms. It's not that the author just threw words. And all you have to do is, I discuss the issue of Jerusalem and Zion in the book. I have a very important subsection where I discuss the difference between Elohim and Yahweh. And again, just as in 82, we have only Elohim, in Genesis 1, Yahweh does not appear until the beginning of chapter 2. In chapter 1, we have exclusively Elohim. And then in 2-3, Yahweh Elohim systematically, and then you have a split between the two. If this is happenstance, then what is not happenstance? <laughs> but again, we have to submit to the textual data. Like someone could get excited and said, Adonai created the whole world. Well, I don't see this in the Bible. At least in Genesis 1, 2, 3. It could be elsewhere. And once more, that is why quoting the texts in context is of the essence. But you know what theology mixes the four Gospels and it gives you a story of Jesus in the Sunday school material. And it's very funny. And in this same Sunday school material, the students are, at least in some material, taught that the combination of the four Gospels into one by a writer in the early centuries, you know, is heretic. But then all theology is heretic. Because it plays on that time and again. Notice how very often we do this in the sermon. You know, we start speaking about Jesus and then we start quoting from book one, number one and two and three and four and mixing them together. But it is the preacher who mixes them. It is as though the preacher is writing his own fifth gospel. Another example, you remember in the classroom, in Gethsemane, Jesus was tempted and then you start moving into Luke to introduce the blood. But Jesus was not tempted in Gethsemane in Luke. He was tempted at the Mount of Olives. I know, I know, I'm Palestinian. People tell you, but you know, but the Gethsemane is in the Mount of Olives and so on. How do you know that? It's because later geography told you that. But then the Mount of Olives is very functional in Luke. Anyway, it bears repeating, friends, really, if we need to use these podcasts to teach the people in the sense of just drawing their attention. 
I think I'm beginning slowly on to change my phraseology from text to textual data. And perhaps it would be worth it to have a class on English verbs with and without prepositions and begin right at the beginning in lesson number one about climb. Say, what is the meaning of climb? Everybody <laughs> answers with the addition of up in their mind until Richard Burton, who comes from Wales, corrects them. You can climb down. Anyway, friends, we have a lot to do and you better do it because I have done it. That, Father Paul, is an ominous way to end this podcast because deep down inside, I have no doubt that if we don't do it, when we are made to stand, it will not be very comfortable for us. You said it, brother. God can make you stand to put you down. Exactly. Well, thanks so much, Father Paul. Thank you you have a much. great week. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. God bless you both. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.